Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, as that David said, as that video just showed, I do hope you'll be inviting because it really is an awesome opportunity for us to to reach out to those beyond our, our walls and share the good news of the gospel. And that's so incredibly important. It's, it's vitally needed. Uh, if we want to see the world change, it's not going to change because of new laws or rules. It's going to change because hearts are changed. And that begins with children. We know that m- more children, more individuals come to faith in their childhood than any other time of life. So the, the window there is, is, is particularly helpful, and we do everything we can to help that be, be true. Also, again, just remember to f- give us your movie choices at the movies, uh, and you can do it either with a card, drop it off, or you can do it online at our Find It page. Those are both there available to you. You know, sometimes it seems like we're going to be looking today at the Bible, and sometimes it seems like the Bible is little more than a decoration in, in some lives. In one study, it, it, one on, in five churchgoers said they never read the Bible. A lot of folks struggle with what it says, or they, they just dismiss it altogether. Is it irrelevant, or it's too old, or there are too many issues with it? Along with stories about Jesus and other men and women of faith, we get into long genealogies. We get into obscure rules. We get into obtuse poetry. We get into frightening end times imagery. It's no wonder there are a number of folks today who, who struggle with what to do with it, who have you know, even those who, who aren't opposed to following Jesus don't always get the Bible. What should we do with it? Read it? Digest it? Ignore it? Let it serve as a decoration in our homes? Well, historically, Christianity has made some really significant claims about the Bible. That it is, in fact, the Word of God. The Word of God, God's Word Himself, what He has spoken to us into, into our lives, containing all that is needed for salvation. So, it, it is a, a picture, if you will, of, of, of life beginning with creation, going through the fall and, and, and the presence of sin, struggle and adversity, redemption, and ultimately eternity. It tells of a God who is perfectly just and holy but at the same time loves us so much in spite of our sins that he provided the means for our redemption through his son Jesus Christ. So the question we have to all wrestle with at some point or another is can I trust what the Bible tells me? Do I really believe what it says when sometimes it's really difficult to work through or there are parts of it I struggle with? And that was the, the crux of some of your questions in this series that we're doing, Q&A, about the Bible. Uh, questions and apologetics. The questions that, that you know people have asked or you yourself ask that maybe impedes people from coming to know Christ better or maybe even for you a real issue in your faith journey. And we, we said, we've been saying this series that apologetics, the Q&A, the apologetics is about defending the faith both from attacks, but also from misunderstandings. 
Last week, I, I mentioned to you that we put on our website, on the Find It page, a list of a number of apologetics resources, websites, several dozen of them. And they're really, there's some really good stuff in there. In fact, one of them in particular I was using a good bit this week is simply called gotquestions.org. And you go into it, you type in a question, um, and it is already sifted through 4,300 questions and it'll pull up the one closest to the question you ask or if there's not one it'll allow you to submit it for a later response and at the bottom of the article then it pulls up some additional questions that you may want to investigate that are related so it's there's some really good things out there some really good tools uh, I want to encourage you on Today, then, I want to take a stab at some of your questions about the Bible. And as always, in this series, we're doing, we, we say I'm approaching it with a lot of humility. Because sometimes there is no simple answer or no single answer. In many cases, and especially today, I am going to just barely touch on some of the topics. In fact, I want to encourage you, if, if, if questions come up in your mind, I want to encourage you to dig deeper. And we've, I've put another uh, page on that website, uh, find it page on Bible resources. And there's some tools there that you can use. The, the word Bible itself comes from both Latin and Greek words meaning book. And this book, this one book, is actually a collection of 66 different books. Uh, and, and they're all kinds of books. They are literature, all kinds of literature, history, biography, poetry, prophecy, letters, written by about 40 different authors over a, of a period of about 1,500 years. That's a long time, 1,500 years. As one site said, the authors were kings, fishermen, priests, government officials, farmers, shepherds, and doctors. And yet despite the, the diversity of writers, despite the, the different styles of writing, despite the amount of time over which it was given, the Bible has a remarkable unity. Because ultimately, what Christians claim and believe is that it is actually, it has only one author, and that is God himself who guided its writings through his Holy Spirit working in and through those authors. The Bible says all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. But here's the thing. We believe that not only was the writing inspired, but that today even the, the reading and the hearing and the time of preaching are also where God's Spirit is at work so that even as we gathered here this morning, some of you, you come in here and maybe you just sit and you think, well, if he tells something funny, that'll be great, but otherwise I'm going to check out. And, and I get that. But, but what goes on, not because of me, not because I'm smart or something like that, is that when God's word is spoken, when God's word is read, when God's word is explained, the God's spirit works in that, not only then in the writing of his word, but also in the hearing of his word, in the applying of his word, in the understanding of his word. So that what we do here this morning, as Betsy said earlier, it's not about we come in to get what we can get. That's a consumer mindset. We come to give ultimately. 
We come to recognize the God who is the creator of all, that he is the audience of one. You're not the audience. I'm not the audience. God is the audience of one that we come to worship and praise him and to hear what he wants to say. And, and it is so cool because sometimes you'll come up to me after a service and you'll say, I heard this or I got that. It was like God was talking to me. How did you know? And I, I didn't know. I mean, I'll just tell you, I'm not that smart. But God does. And God works in that way in incredible fashion to speak into our lives still. If we come at it with that goal, with that desire, if you come in here and you're going to just sit and sit like a bump on a log, you're going to leave like a bump on a log. But if you come, you say, you know, just like Samuel, when he was a young child and he was hearing God, but he didn't know what it was. And Eli, the priest said to him, well, when you hear it, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And he went back and he listened and God did speak to him. Now, he may not speak to you in a voice, but I, I assure you that if you come into times when you're reading your Bible or in worship or in a conversation with others about God and his word, if you are seeking to hear him, he wants to speak, and he will say things to you. He will open things for you. He will show you coincidences. Things will happen because he is still at work today, even in right now. These 66 books that make up the Bible are really uh, divided into two parts, what have historically been called the Old Testament, made up of 39 books, and the New Testament, made up of 27 the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew to tell the story of a nation, the nation of Israel, while the New Testament written in Greek is the story of a man, Jesus the Christ. Christ is his title, it's not his last name. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God, brought into our world through the nation of Israel, that out of that nation in the Old Testament would come one who was the embodiment of all that God was trying to say, and he became real to us in Jesus. It's the story of creation and the fall, promise, redemption, hope, and salvation, and above all, love, God's infinite, unconditional, sacrificial love for each one of us. Skeptics and even lots of Christians who've never dug into the Bible and its origins like to question how these 66 books came into being to make up today's Protestant Bible. And the truth is, there are a lot more writings. There were, there are still today, many more writings from biblical times and, and later. So how did we end up with the ones we do have? Why are we using them? To get at that, we, we use a word called canon. And, and it's not C-A-N-N-O-N, like you're going to shoot something. It's C-A-N-O-N. And it means a collection of books where the, and the word canon originally meant read, but has come to me now sort of a measuring rod or a standard or a norm, the, the norm, the standard of what the Bible texts are. And applied to the Christian faith then, the term canon relates to the collection of books known as the Bible, which serves as the doctrinal standards for Christian faith and practice. We want to know, what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? We go to God's Word, and the canon spells out for us what that is. The Christian faith says that what makes these books the canon is not a human selection process. It's not some people, some smart people got in a room, or some dumb people got in a room. It is God himself who established his word as the authority. Not just a good idea, but the authority for faith and Christian living. 
So what people did was discern with God's help, God's standard, God's canon entrusted to us. Jude 3 says, dear friends, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people, entrusted, handed off to us for us to use. God has given us everything we need for salvation and, and in that, for that matter, eternity in his word. The Old Testament itself was largely determined by Judaism by the time of Jesus. And, and New Testament writings allude to almost every book in the Old Testament. Now, there were more questions about the writings of the New Testament time. Uh, there were more of them out there that were floating around. And yet, in the early years after the death of Jesus and his resurrection, they, there began to show up collections. Collections first of Paul's writings, then later as the Gospels came into being, collections of the Gospels that were passed on. Because if you receive something that is really powerful for your life... If someone has sent you a letter and, and, and it really helps you understand Christ and how to live your life, and you want to share that. And so these writings were begun to be shared in first one and two, and then they began to pull together into groups of them that were passed on. And one of the defining criteria, criteria of these, these books or letters was that they were either written by or spoken to uh, or spoken by someone who had been an eyewitness of Jesus himself. Well, some people say, well, well, the Apostle Paul came after Jesus was resurrected. Yes, but we know in Acts, the book of Acts that he, in fact, had a living encounter with the risen Christ. And so we find that those documents were very significant. In addition, the, the, these works that made up the, that canon showed a, a remarkable consistency with other New Testament writings as well as with the Old Testament so that there were no conflicts of major doctrines or teachings. Interestingly, persecution played a major role because what happened is as time went on in those first, those first decades after Jesus, uh, increasingly the Romans or the Jews at times would persecute followers of Christ and would, would threaten them and demand that they turn over writings. Some of those writings they did turn over, writings that they didn't find very helpful. But what we know is true is that many of those writings that were now in our Bible today, people died instead of turning them over. People gave up their lives. They were martyred for books of this Bible. You think about it today. If someone came up to you and, you know, and said, you know, if you don't renounce this or give me your Bible, um, you're in, we're going to kill you or something like that. And people were willing to say, okay, kill me. I'm not going to do it. That, if you stop and think about it, sometimes our level of commitment and our level of, of, of passion for Jesus Christ and then compare it to what some of those people had to do. Because they were convicted that God's spirit was at work in those documents to the point where they, they would give up their lives rather than turn them over. You know, when you and I hold our Bible, we are holding a book that martyrs died for in, in the first century, but interestingly, it is still happening today in some parts of the world. Men and women of faith following Jesus are still dying for the word of God. By the mid-fourth century, though, the, the canon was firmly and, and consistently established. 
Another question that often arises is whether we can trust that what we actually have is what God intended and that those early witnesses wrote them out well and that they were copied well. Because what, here's something that is, is true, is that we have none of the original manuscripts. We have none of the original documents, none whatsoever. We need to realize, though, that we have more documents, more copies of the various biblical works than any other documents from antiquity. Okay, l- let me just show you this, this chart. I think it's really helpful. I actually took a photograph of this right out of a book that I use for uh, our Exploring Christianity Alpha gr- Journey group. Over on the left here, you see various works, classic works of antiquity. Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus, Caesar's Gallic War, Livy's Roman history, and the New Testament. Here's when they were written, approximate times, some before the time of Christ, some during and some after the time of Christ. The, none of these documents do we have original manuscripts. It's not just that the Bible is unique in this, it's true for all of the documents. But when, do we, when are the earliest copies showing up? 900 AD, 900, 1100, 900, 900. You get to the New Testament, 130 for various parts of it and for the whole thing together, 350. Look at the time span between when it was written and when we have the earliest copy, 1300, 1300, 1000, 950, 900, 300. And that's for the whole thing, not for some of the individual main documents. It's as little as 30 or 40 years. Now here's the kicker. How many copies did they have? We have eight copies of this document. We have eight copies of this document, 20 of this, nine to 10 of this, 20 of this. And yet, no one says of these documents, they aren't trustworthy, they weren't real, that we can just throw them out. We don't know what was really there. So when we come to the New Testament, what we discover is we have 5,000 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, and 9,300 others. We have over 20,000 fragments and full documents of the New Testament. You do the math, that's at least a thousand times more than any other document from antiquity. And in many cases, thousands of times more. We have more documentation of what was written in the New Testament than any other work from antiquity. And in fact, while scholars don't question any of these works, nor can they, when they honestly look at the data, nor can they question that of the New Testament. And what's really interesting is that virtually all of the New Testament writings, all except about 15 or 20 verses, okay? 15 or 20 verses is less than one chapter of, the, of any chapter in the New Testament. We have found in the writings of others the writings of of preachers, teachers, the writings of people, not just copying them, but quoting, we have found all but 15 or 20 verses of the entire New Testament and other documents. So that if somebody wanted to reconstruct the New Testament, they have virtually everything they need to fully reconstruct it, even if we had none of these documents. If we had none of them, we could get all of it there except for 15 or 20 verses. There are some occasionally slight errors because of copying them, because they are writing them by hand. You know, we don't have copiers that you go and set your document on there and they, the scroll is scanned and out comes a brand new scroll. They were written by hand. And, and the, 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 the errors typically are variations in spelling or grammar or slips of the pen. Um, and variations can then be... Can, 
uh, compared with other copies to discern what was actually intended. And, and in all those variations, scholars tell us not one single Christian doctrine is in jeopardy because of any of those, wherever those occur. But, but here's a remarkable thing. Many of you have heard of this. 1947, a little shepherd boy in the Middle East, in, in the area right above the Dead Sea, throws a rock into a cave, and he hears something pottery break. Now, right here is, is a escarpment going up. The Dead Sea is right down here, several hundred yards. And in this area, there lived a community called the Essenes, who were there from probably about 100 years before Christ until about 100 years after Christ. And they saved documents various scrolls in jars that were hidden in this cave and many others that are in these hills that were discovered in 1947. And the amazing thing was, when they dug into those scrolls, they found many of the documents that we consider the Old Testament, but the, the documents in those, um, in those uh, urns, some of them were up to a thousand years older than any existing copy we had. Now, you know the game where you whisper in somebody's ear and then they whisper in somebody's ear and you see what comes out on the other end and it usually comes out kind of weird? You would think, okay, is that what has happened with Scripture? Here's the thing. It could have, except that there were people who gave their whole lives to copying Scripture who believed it was a calling of God that they get it exactly right. So what we discovered is that when we dug into the Dead Sea Scrolls, we discovered that there was virtually no differences between documents a thousand years apart. A thousand years. Copies of copies of copies were still the same accuracy as what we saw from a thousand years before, which tells us how accurate those writers were, how committed and dedicated they were, how they believed that they were doing a holy task for God. Interestingly, in seminary, a professor asked us one time, he said, um, what would happen if today archaeologists discovered a new scroll that could be absolutely proven to have been written by the Apostle Paul? Should we then therefore add it into the Bible? Think about that for a second. Without a question, it is Paul's writing. Should we? Well, if we understand the process of what has gotten us to where we are today, we would say, no. Why? Because if God had wanted that writing to be available to us, he would have made it available. He would have allowed it to come out at the time when the canon was being pulled together. The fact that he did not, because again, remember that we're not saying this is simply a human collection of books. We are saying that God guided not only the writing of the books, but the collecting of the books as well. And therefore, to say that we could add it is to say that somehow God forgot something for a lot of people. And I'm not going to say that about God. And so we would say no. It may be helpful to read, useful to read. We can learn some things. It may be helpful for our Christian journey, but it is not Scripture. It does not carry the weight of Scripture because of the fundamental belief that God is in, 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 at work in the midst of this, giving us everything we need for all of us for salvation and living His Word. Today, He speaks primarily through 
the Bible. And so, likewise, when someone asks me, well, what does God want me to do? What is the will of God for me? What I always tell people is, well, first, go to the Bible. Now, it may not tell you whether to take this job or that job, but it will tell you about how to live with integrity in the job you're in. It will tell you about how to live in relationship with those around you. It will tell you to love your neighbors and even love your enemies. It will give you, in fact, probably 90% of the decision that you and I make on a daily basis, are the foundations for them are already there in the Word of God. It is fundamental to how we go forward in our lives. Now, when it comes to reading the Bible today, the, obviously we're dealing with translations. The, because I said the, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, the New Testament primarily in Greek, and the translating process is not unlike any other translating process if we were translating Spanish into English or, or some other thing. There are two typical approaches to translations. And uh, the first one is word for word called formal equivalence. That is, you take each word and you translate that word in the original sentence structure and pull that out. Now here's the thing. Some of you are bilingual. Some of you, or you've at least learned other languages. And what you have learned is that the sentence structure in one language may be totally different from the sentence structure in another language. That's why sometimes translating is not an easy thing to do because you can't just go word by word. You've got to hear what's being said. So that's why there are some translations that are on the, heavily on the word-for-word -word side that are more difficult to read. They're more stilted because they are intending to be very accurate in the words, although the sentence structure is more difficult. The other approach is thought-for-thought, thought, which is called dynamic equivalence. And here is where the, the translator looks at a phrase or even a sentence. What, are the, what is it trying to say using the same words but rearranging them as much as possible into forms that are now readable into the language in which it is being translated? The best translations also use teams of translators who offer checks and balances against individual biases. There are a few groups on the fringe or outside of Christianity that like to point to themselves as having some, some great knowledge. And, and quite honestly, the, the one that happens most often is in Jehovah's Witnesses, they will show you their Bible and their Bible is not the same, but their Bible doesn't tell you that it is not written by a team. They will not even divulge who wrote their Bible, who translated their Bible. You've got to look at those things. And that's why we all look toward translations, modern English translations for the bulk of us, that have used a team of people who have sought with the best documents to bring the most, the most helpful translations forward. I have another chart here that shows then this kind of on a spectrum. From here over here, word for word, to thought for thought, and even over here, paraphrase, which is typically an individual who has translated from either an English translation or an, er, an earlier one. And over here, we have the living Bible and the message. It doesn't mean they're bad, but it means that you want to be more careful with those if you're doing an in-depth Bible study. Over here on the far left is an interlinear, which, interlinear, which is direct Greek-Hebrew. Then you get into some of the translations, the NAS, the King James, the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard. Right in the middle is the most popular Bible for the last couple of decades called the NIV, the New International Version. It falls really kind of in the spectrum between word for word and thought for thought. 
You keep going this way, you get the NLT, New Living Translation, one I typically use a lot because it's easy for people who have not had a lot of experience with the Bible to read it. Um, all the way over uh, to this one, New International Reader's Version, because down here, this one's written for children. Down here, you'll see age uh, grades listed after. These are actually grade levels. The New International Reader's Version is thir- three and a half, grade three and a half. It's written for children. And so the concepts, the words are simpler. The King James Version, which has been around for 400 years, is at the 13th grade. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it's, it's kind of beyond high school. It is Shakespearean English. How many of us today speak Shakespearean English? Okay, two of you. Good. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it, but the point is, it's sometimes helpful to find a version that's more readable. The NIV is at the eighth grade reading level. The New Living Translation is at the six and a half grade reading level. And so, and I've included that in a document that's in on the Find It page of Bible resources, that actual chart that you can dig into more if you, if you want. And, and here's the thing. When we're talking about the inspired writing of the Bible, we aren't talking about the translations into any language, English, Spanish, whatever it may be. We're talking about the original documents written by the original authors, which is why study of those languages by scholars is so important for helping get us the, the, most, the best translation possible that is as faithful as it can be to the original inspired text. Now, another area of question and concern regards differences from the Old to the New Testaments. There are a lot of different aspects to these questions, but, and we're going to only just focus really just kind of on part of one this morning. It revolves around laws in the Old Testament that seem like they don't have a place anymore in the New Testament. What changed? Why? So many of you ask that question. And, and people ask that question. Why, why does it say in the Old Testament there's certain old, there are food laws, or there's certain punishments, or there are sacrifices, or there are strict interpretations of the Sabbath that, that we are supposed to do, and yet clearly we don't do them anymore, and in fact by the time of the New Testament they didn't do them anymore. And to get at that we have to understand some of the context, which is always true. Over time, the law of the Old Testament was typically divided, not in biblical times, but later into three categories called the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil or judicial law. Now, the civil or judicial law was revolved around laws for the operation of Israel as a nation. God gave them laws to show them how to live out in civil fashion among themselves as a theocracy, not a democracy. Ceremonial laws revolved around laws that distinguished the Jews from other peoples or nations, whether it was circumcision or their food restrictions or their cleanliness or uncleanliness, uh, their clothing, all kinds of things like that. Moral laws were based on God's holy nature to promote the welfare of God's people through their obedience. And they encompassed... Regulations on justice, on respect, on sexual conduct, and included the Ten Commandments. And these were things that were not set for a certain time for the nation of Israel. The the civil, the ceremonial laws were given specifically to the nation of Israel for the time in which they existed. In the Old Testament, Israel was in essence really kind of like an infant. You know, you, you think about a child, and when they begin... 
You have to be very black and white with them. When you have a three-year-old, you don't explain to the three-year-old, let me tell you, going out into the street, there are these big cars, and when they hit you, they break all these bones in your body, and they do all this damage. You just simply say, don't cross that line. Right? Because when they're young, you have to be very concrete. Never mind the principles. you got to tell them, these are the rules. But as they get older, you begin to explain, well, here is why we did this. Here is why we were concerned about it. Here is the damage that can come. And their minds, as they grow and they mature, they begin to understand, oh, it's not just simply that I couldn't do whatever I wanted, but you were doing it to protect me. And so the same is true with God's laws. As we move through the Bible, we see what some scholars call progressive revelation. That is that God increasingly reveals himself and his purposes so that it becomes more and more clear as we are spend more time with God as a people, we come to understand not just the rules, but in fact the principles, the underlying values that, that are at work in them so that you see in Genesis and Exodus very very strictness, great strictness. By the time you get to Psalms, you see people crying out to God and sometimes questioning God. And by the time you move to the New Testament, you see it very, very different as God has now revealed himself ultimately in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of all that. And so the, the, the role of law diminished it, 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 as it came to recognize a new people of God, the church, who were no longer a covenant nation, Israel, but a covenant people, the church, that was open to all nationalities, not, not just one nation in one place for one time, but all people, so that the prophet Jeremiah predicted this new kind of covenant. He wrote, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, right? That's what you do with a youngster. You take them by the hand, and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. This would occur very specifically at the day called Pentecost, 40 days after the, the resurrection of Jesus when the Holy Spirit came into those first disciples to live in them for then on. Not simply coming into followers of, of, of Jesus at, for short periods of time for specific tasks, but that he came to live in all followers of Jesus for all time from there on out. So that Jesus said, do not think that, that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them by coming to live in us. The relationship of God's people and the law changed. And the apostle Peter, after the death of Jesus, received a vision about this. Acts chapter 10, Peter saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let, lay, let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds, which were, by the way, ones that were unclean for the Jews, going all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. That vision confirmed to Peter that the dietary food laws 
were no longer needed for followers of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself was in fact the embodiment of the old ceremonial laws of of sacrifice. So they never needed to be repeated anymore. For he had fulfilled all of its requirements. Instead of sacrificing a lamb every year, instead of going and, and offering sacrifices every time you sinned or you were guilty of something, Jesus said, I came once for all time to take the sins of all people upon myself that it would never have to be repeated again. So Jesus summed up the big principles behind the law, quoting scriptures that were in fact are found in the Old Testament, but he uniquely combined them to come to be what we call now the great commandment. Jesus said you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. <coughs> Excuse me. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Before, you had all these rules. You had all these laws. But now, as you have grown, I am giving you the underlying principle. It's love. Love God and love your neighbor. And so early Christianity understood that the ceremonial and the civil aspects of the law were no longer in force. They were, they, they were no longer applicable to followers of Jesus Christ. The moral law continued to have value then and today as a tool not to make us saved, but a tool for understanding how to live out. What does it mean to love my neighbor? What does that look like? Those laws help us understand that you don't steal, you don't commit adultery, you don't covet what others have, and so on and so forth. They're not, they're not the entrance into the kingdom. They are pictures of what living in the kingdom looks like once you are there by faith in Jesus Christ. So the Bible, we look at the Bible and we see this journey from very concrete early in the Old Testament for children of faith to the point of Jesus giving us the principles. And so we no longer need all the minutia of laws and rules like Israel, too, we are called to grow. And the New Testament calls us to seek maturity in Christ that goes beyond legalism to live lives motivated by the love of God in Jesus Christ. And in fact, I have it in your notes, I won't read it to you, a passage from Hebrews that says that too often we get stuck in the early, the, the young phase that we're stuck on milk, we're stuck as babes, and we're called to maturity, we're called to eat meat, we're called to get to the point where we can do more. And if you're just sitting around and waiting for somebody to feed you, that is the very definition of a child. The definition of one who is mature is they learn how to feed themselves, to grow, to seek their own growth. And that's why we constantly are talking to you about reading the Bible, investing daily in time with it for your maturity. Not because you need to only hear it from me, but because you need to grow. We all need to grow. We all need to spend time. And the Bible spells it out. Spending time daily with God in our Bibles and prayer helps us deepen that relationship, to go more mature, to discern more of the principle so that we can love our neighbors, that that we can understand what Jesus means even when he says love our enemies, that we don't have to like what we do, they do, but we can work in their lives for good. And again, I've put another document 
on the, the website, on the Find It page, that just gives you some resources that you can use to dig more Bible dictionaries, timelines, uh, a thing called a concordance that you, you know a passage or you know a word and you can't remember where you found it. You can go onto a concordance and look it up and find it. Commentaries that help explain more about a passage in Scripture. All of these are there. And in addition, I point you to uh, various kinds of Bibles, particularly the Version Bible app. Man, this is one of the most amazing apps out there. It has been downloaded over 180 million times. It has all the translations you could ever want and many of the tools for free right there on your mobile device. So, and it has in concordances and all kinds of stuff. We encourage you to use those things. Be involved in small groups like life groups and journey groups. To do Bible study with friends of yours at work or home and your family. You know what? The church doesn't have to put you together to do a Bible study. You can do that yourself. And we also offer training and, and mentoring through our life-to-life ministry. And I know, in reality, I have barely touched on questions we could ask about the Bible. I know I haven't gotten to all of your questions. But that's part of why I'm giving you resources. Because there are answers out there. And there are thoughtful people who have spent a lot of time digging into it. And I hope that you will dig in. But here's the thing. The question that that we started with is the question I come back to. Is the Bible trustworthy? Well, honestly, each one of us has to make up our own mind about that. But I will tell you, I believe it is. I believe it is authoritative for my life that that was intention for all of human life, not just mine. And therefore, when it tells me, when I'm reading it and I get uncomfortable with something, it tells me that I identify my attitude in there is not fulfilling one of God's principles, then instead of dismissing it or pushing it aside, I need to figure out how I, by the help of God, through the power of his spirit in me, can seek to be conformed to what God's word teaches us. That is what it means for it to be authoritative for your life and mine. And I will tell you that this church, as long as we are here, we will stand on the authority of the word of God, that we will teach and preach it without, without um, um, uh, apology. That we believe it is God's word for how each of us are to live our lives. That it is powerful that it has the power to transform lives through the Spirit working in it, if we will submit. Now, you can, you can dismiss it, but hear this. Anytime you or I dismiss what God teaches, we are dismissing God, the creator of the universe, who made every single one of us, who has a plan for us, who knows what is best even when we're in the middle of stuff and we don't see a way through. He has a plan. He is with you. He loves you. It doesn't mean it'll be painless. But we trust him. We stand on the authority of his word and he will see it through. That's why at the bottom of the notes is this statement. What do I believe about the trustworthiness of the Bible? That is a question each one of us has to answer. But I will tell you that the day came when I decided that it was authoritative for my life. I recognized that some things had to change in the way I lived my life, in the choices I made, and how I did certain things. And I have never regretted it. Why? Because God is not, his intention is not to make life miserable. 
He created us for life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And sometimes the culture tells us this is how to have fun. This is what to do. But culture didn't create you and me. God did. God knows what is best. And I choose to stand on the authority of God's word and believe what he says. And I hope you will too. In just a moment, we're going to offer communion. Why? Because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And we're going to ask you, if, you're, if you are going to participate, come down and join us in the bottom section here. Uh, we're going to begin just a minute or two after the service. If you have children and, and you're going to receive communion, please go get them and bring them back to join you so that, that our, our volunteers there don't have to stay for the whole time. But, um, and we welcome them to come and receive it as well. So uh, in just a moment, we, we will do that um, and uh, ask that if, if you choose not to stay, that you, you, you choose to leave quietly for the sake of those who want to receive what God has done and what God has invited us, in fact, commanded us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person here that you have created that you love so much, and that you have given us your word, the Bible, to teach us, to show us, to guide us, to encourage us, to warn us, to bless us, to grow us. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to understand how to, to seek you through your word. Grow us, Father. Help us not to be satisfied as, as infants on milk, but to become more and more mature men and women of God. We know, Father, that you have given us your word, the Bible, to guide us, to teach us, to aid us in that. Help us to trust it, to trust you in the midst of it, even when we have questions, even when we can't figure it all out. Because you are God, and we love you very much. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.